Thank you, Mandy, for such a wonderful reading of our text for this morning. When Jesus talks like he does in our text today, I find the self-evaluation that follows sometimes a little too sharp for my liking. Our text leads us down the path of the dishonest manager or the unjust steward. As the story unfolds, the camera focuses on him and we watch as he scrambles to salvage something of his life. He's been found out and he has very little time to make any course adjustments. We see his shrewd behavior, as it is later called by his master, as the dishonest manager moves to several of his master's clients. He quickly settles their debts for much less than they owe, but he also manages to secure a large sum of that debt. The actions seem to impress the man's master, and as viewers, we can feel the intensity of the plot lessen a little bit. The music changes, the noose around his neck slightly lessened. If the text stopped here, I would find it a bit odd thinking that this is the anti-hero getting away in just the nick of time. But we're forced to place it in context of being read immediately after Luke 15 that Mac read for us last week. And if we recall, that text begins by saying, tax collectors and sinners were drawing near to listen to Jesus. And they grumbled saying, this fellow welcomes sinners and eats with them. As that chapter ends, our chapter for today begins with a short sentence, then Jesus said to his disciples. So we have to ponder, are the Pharisees still listening? Are they nearby? Has Jesus simply pivoted and said, well, by the way, I'm gonna tell more stories, or have the Pharisees wandered off? Wonder upon wonders, if we continue to read our scripture, only one sentence beyond the lectionary text for today, we see this wonderful verse that Luke writes, the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all of this, and they ridiculed him, talking about Jesus. So Jesus tells his stories to his disciples, but makes no secret of his teaching it either. And here we come upon why a story like today makes me feel uncomfortable. Jesus tells his disciples, in essence, that what we do as his disciples matters. Our actions matter so much that we will find ourselves with more responsibilities if we have been faithful and none if we cannot bear the responsibilities that we were already given. Jesus then doubles down on his language and even more severely says, no slave can serve two masters for a slave will either hate the one and love the other or be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. Well, gone are my lofty feelings that I had just received when Jesus finished one page before in Luke 15 talking about the lost sheep and the lost coin, because after all, I am the prodigal son who runs home and the father runs to me on the road. I am that lost coin and the angels rejoice when I come into my faith and have a party in heaven just thinking about me. And of course, I am the lost sheep who Jesus leaves all the 99 who are not quite as important as me. The irony of my self-focused reading of scripture, which I think is difficult for any of us to avoid at times as we come to our Bible, drips heavily off the verse from today where Jesus now says that I am a slave and he is my master. I draw back from the text with a little bit of confusion. 
I cannot help but have my mind catapult forward to standing before the Son of Man and having to give an account for my life. Suddenly, my imagined joyful reunion has a little bit of fear and solemnity to it that I wasn't really told about when I signed the dotted line and skipped gleefully off to follow Jesus. What have I done with all that you've given me? Was I a dishonest manager? Uh-oh. You see, Bonhoeffer tried to warn me, didn't he? He told me to be wary of the cheap grace that gets peddled around and to keep a watchful eye on how I lived my life in response to the costly grace that I so enjoy. But did I listen? Have you listened? How will we know that we have served one master or dutifully served two until we stand before the Son of Man? And even then, as we analyze our lives, everything pulls us in so many different directions as we do our best to serve Christ. Sitting in a van in Cuba on a mission trip, my friend's father, who was our mission trip leader, leaned into the window and he said, so are you ready to preach at the church we're going to? And I said, well, how long do we have till we get there? And he said, 10 minutes. And I said, oh, okay, sure. I was a religion major at the time, so I was naive and overzealous. He smiled and he said to me, good, you should be ready in season and out of season. And he walked off with, you know, clearly he was excited to see what was about to happen. While we drove, I thought, what am I gonna speak about? I looked out the window, I thought, and my, my friend and I were runners and we had gone through a grapefruit orchard just that day. And while we were running, he had plucked one of the grapefruits. It was mostly harvested already. And I thought, oh my goodness, he's eating one of Fidel's grapefruits, don't do that. But he was you know, hypoglycemic and so he had to eat something. This was his defense. And so he started eating it and he swore it was the best grapefruit he had ever eaten. And I wouldn't partake of it. I said, no, 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 I don't wanna to go to jail. So he ate his grapefruit. We began to run, and then of course I, I succumbed and I had to have one. It was the most amazing grapefruit of my entire life. None of that kind of sourness that they have, it was just sweet. Well, I was thinking about this as we pulled up to the church, we go in and they start introducing people and, and this couple comes up and they're just so excited and they say, we're gonna get married soon and they're, they're sharing this experience with the church, they're engaged and it was hard not to smile when talking to them. And I knew that's what I'm going to talk about the grapefruit on the tree ripening. You can't take it too early, it's not gonna be good. You can't take it too late as I usually get it, obviously, from somewhere else in the world. It's not quite the way it should be. And I'm gonna use them as this wonderful metaphor. And we'll talk about grapefruit. I get done with this short sermon and they come up and they say, how did you know that mango is a term for sweetheart in Cuba? <laughs> I said, what are you talking about? And every time I thought I was saying grapefruit, I had said mango. And the Holy Spirit clearly knew what the Holy Spirit was doing. I had no idea. This is what we want to happen. This is what I'm hoping happens today. <laughs> you can tell me afterwards what I actually said. <laughs> While preparing to leave another mission trip in Pakistan, I stood before two young men that we had spent weeks with getting to know. Having wonderful conversations, they were so curious and earnest just to know what random questions, what is going on with these Christians, you know, over in Ireland and they're killing, just all these questions that they had out of just, who are you? And we, of course, had the same questions. Well, tell me about these Muslims that we hear about. We hear a lot of things too. And we had these conversations over meals 
And as we were getting ready to say goodbye, he offered us gifts. And I, I thought, oh, I, I didn't know we were supposed to have gifts. What do I do? He said, no, no, this is our country. And you came here and you did these things. And, and thank you. It's the, here's this gift. And then in his difficult to find English, which was much better than my three phrases I knew in Urdu, he said, you are sincere. The tingles came up my body, and I could not believe that a person of such sincere faith himself was saying, I see it in you too. It's just different. Each year I got a, a card on New Year's the following years saying, Happy New Year's, because it was the only, uh, celebrate, the only holiday that we could both celebrate, and he sent it faithfully until my address changed. Uh, but what a wonderful experience for God to say, He also is sincere, which is what happened to me in that moment. Walking in the mountains of Honduras, doing a fireman's carry, if you know what that is, so you can carry someone a little larger than yourself with another person, uh, this man was sitting on our arms, and we walked up a steep, dirty hill to try and take him back to his home. We were doing a medical clinic each day, and this was a youth trip, so I basically just kind of sat back and made sure they were doing what they were supposed to be doing, and you know, that kind of thing. It's wonderful, isn't it? And, uh, but then each day, I found myself carrying somebody home. I was like, this, this is kind of actually tough. And as we're going up this hill, the verse from Matthew 25 just leapt into my mind. As you have done to the least of these, so you have done to me. And then I heard this still, small voice say, you're carrying my son up this hill. Whew. Tears coming down my face. I didn't have a beard to hide them. My knees slightly buckled. I thought, good Lord, you have, to, you have to pick your times better. I'm gonna drop this person that you have me carrying up this hill. But this wonderful, affirming and loving experience took place and I couldn't wait to, I shared it with the whole team and it was a great, just, you, you can't imagine the feeling unless you've had a similar experience. The next day, of course, we had our last day for the medical clinics and you know what happened. Brett, we need you to come carry this person home. Come on, I can't do it. I just had this spiritual experience. But I go over and there's this kid sitting on the bed and he's looking at me. His face all furled up. He had just had something done to his head. The details, if I remember correctly, you don't need to know, kind of gross. But he couldn't walk home. And I'm like, he, he's not gonna let me carry him. But they put him in my arms and his head is just covered in a bandage and sweat. And he put his head right here. And we began to carry him home. I don't know how I made it to his house with someone in front of me, I can't remember, but I do remember just that experience of I'm carrying home the Son of God. And of course there were tears, and of course there was joy, but I was also carrying home my own son who would one day be born. I was also carrying home every brother and sister, and I was also carrying home a young Honduran boy. These are three very different stories from three very different mission trips. And I share them for a few reasons this morning, and perhaps for a few that someone dubbed the mango preacher has no idea why I shared them with you this morning, but maybe you know. Again, hopefully you'll tell me later. First, I share these stories because I believe they all have a thread of ease to them. When I am on a mission trip, my entire being, my heart, my soul, my mind, my body, everything just relaxes into a sense of accommodation and comfortability. While on a mission trip, I can find myself doing difficult or messy or dangerous or whatever word you want to insert there, things, and they seem normal. Of course, 
I'll preach in 10 minutes. What a silly question. Of course, you know, I've got this. I'm on a mission trip. Here I might think differently. You know. <laughs> of course I'll carry these people home. Of course I'll sit and talk with this person and share with them in an open and safe environment because this is where the Holy Spirit meets me. This transformation that happens when on a mission trip, if you've experienced it before, and more notably what happens when we come back as we feel it begin to fade, is experienced by most of us who do service in this way of some kind. Surely each trip lingers as we draw back to our normal lives, but we can't quite keep that smile on our faces as we clean toilets or the other things that we were asked to do just days ago while in a different country. It can be accessed, but not in that same pure way as on the mission field or in other spaces of service. And why is that? I think that Jesus gives us a good indication in today's text when he says we can only serve one master. When we set a time and space in our lives to do a mission trip or serve in some special way, we devote ourselves to something in our faith where we can find that we are coming as close as possible to serving one master. There are, for lack of better words, less distractions. When we go, we leave behind family, jobs, friends, churches, routines, schedules of any kind, and we plunge into the unfamiliar in a way where we have to rely more deeply on our faith. We're forced to trust in ways that we would never dare to here at home. I mean, for goodness sake, we walk door to door sometimes sharing the gospel. Would you do that here in Asheville with your neighbors? No. Each voice in our lives competes to bend our will to whatever end they employ. A spouse, for example, has needs, desires, hopes, and dreams, and they're all wonderful. It can be complicated to say the least, when God calls upon a person who is married, how many of you in this room have heard the phrase, God wants you to do what? Why hasn't God cleared that with me first or spoke to me? I'm thinking this would have been nice in Mary and Joseph's situation as well. Children are blessings, but they too call upon us. As I typed the words for the sermon, my son was struggling to take his nap. He didn't understand when I said, son, I need you to take a long nap as long as you can, please. But he himself is a little one who is a master and he has demands and ultimatums, he does. And if he does understand what daddy's asking him, he surely just does not care. Houses demand to be paid for, things cleaned up and kept well oiled. Relationships need to be tended to. Most of our lives are unfortunately set up in such a way as to pull our attention away from the one true God. Jesus says we cannot serve God and wealth, and that is really true of almost anything. It's perhaps worth mentioning that most of the things that I mentioned, a spouse, a son, they're not bad things, they're good things, and they, our attention should be put on them. But it is not always conducive to where God has already called us. Just this morning, I was, my son woke up right as I was trying to leave way too early and hoping he, he wouldn't wake up. And he's saying, Daddy, come back to bed and snuggle. Daddy wants to, but I need to get here and practice one more time. <laughs> that was a good thing he was asking me to do, but it wasn't where I was called to. I hope that makes sense. 
A second reason I share these stories is to highlight the ability that we all do possess to follow Christ with a precious tenacity. We're all uniquely made and come with a myriad of gifts to serve. Even as Christ alludes to in this text for today, we're given much. We must do what we can to allow for times and spaces in our lives where it is clear that we only have one master and where that master is God. Obviously, mission trips are not the only place where we can experience a more suitable ground for our connection to Christ. There are several spiritual sweet spots, if you will, where each of us find the veil thinner and our ability to draw near less hampered. Probably as varied as there are many differences in us. We all connect to God differently. Hopefully, we all have an understanding that there are special times, spaces, events, people, ways that we serve that allow the shimmer of God's eternal light to reflect off of us in a more full way in the lives of others. I implore you to engage in these moments more often. Dust off that prayer journal that has been sitting aside and yet so many times before led you to divine intimate moments. Sign up for another retreat with close friends who before shared so deep and holy moments with you. Revisit that hike outside of Asheville where God spoke to you, where his words oozed off the trees and fell off the wind as you sensed an experience with God. Now, while we cannot always craft a time and space to experience the holy other as if God could be manipulated into such moments, we can do our part to recognize ourselves more fully and to recognize that we have needs that sometimes needs to be met before we can engage with the holy. Now, God will speak to us anywhere. All of you know that for sure. Yet how strange is it that God so often honors a moment crafted carefully where we withdraw from the competing voices and the other masters that we serve. Finally, I shared these three stories with you today to firmly fix Christ's words into the greater story of everything that Christ did. I do believe that we ought to heed the concept that Jesus offers in the story. We should be constantly asking ourselves questions like, what am I doing with the gifts, the resources, the talents, and the life that God has given to me? And yet in the same breath, we must always be reminded of the immense grace of God. Lest we fall into some pharisaical trap of outdoing one another or searching for that life of perfection, the Christian must always and at all times first be a person filled fully of grace. As you know, the manner in which Christians have loved this world and those living in it have sometimes caused and still cause so much confusion and pain. And I contend that I am at least beckoned to, by God to reconsider these stories from my own mission trips. We're all hearkened to moments such as these and asked gently, or sometimes not so gently by the Holy Spirit, why can you not do likewise more often? Where is that person that I saw in Honduras? We all strive to seek in our own lives what it means to serve only one master, and for that master to be Christ instead of wealth or something else. And we must always move first from the never-ending, inexhaustible grace that led Jesus Christ to the cross. It's not for us to be surprised or angered or glad when those around us are suddenly revealed to be less than Christian. We knew better, didn't we? We know better about ourselves. 
But in grace and kindness, it has always been done, as, as it has always been done to us more times than we can count, we reach our hand out to whatever person that is, and we direct our eyes towards Christ and allow their eyes to redirect themselves. The world and all others that we serve so lovingly, our family, our church, our friends, anyone else, they need us to spend this important time connecting deeply to God. Henry Nouwen is quoted as saying, the great spiritual task facing me is to so fully trust that I belong to God that I can be free in the world, free to speak even where my words are not received, free to act even when my actions are criticized, ridiculed, or considered useless. I'm convinced that I will truly be able to live when I fully believe that I'm loved beyond its boundaries. If we can believe that we are loved beyond the boundaries that our other masters set up for us, we can, as Nouwen said, engage in a love and a life that is worth living. His language gives us a light with which we might illumine the, con the connection of the concept of serving two masters with the rest of the Bible. Perhaps we will be free of the other masters in our lives when we continue to do the spiritual work to come fully as we are so loved by God, to understand that concept. And I ask you, where have you experienced God where all else has fallen away and faded into an irrelevant background? How can you begin to take steps now in your life to slowly remove barriers or impediments that are keeping you from connecting with the Holy Other? It might just be that everything and everyone you love depend more than you can possibly imagine on your finding these spaces more often. <laughs>